صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today, we're joined by Sarah Saleh, who's going to be on the panel, Human Rights and the Palestine Laboratory in the Age of Surveillance. Make sure you go to the podcast to get details, but you can get all the ticket details where it's at. Tuesday, 5th of September, 6.30 at RMIT, freepalestinevic.org, freepalestinevic.org. There'll be a link in the podcast as well. But this morning, we've got Sarah Sada, who will be joining Anthony. Sarah has just published a book. How super duper exciting, Sarah. Congratulations. Thank you, Nasser. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. And thank you for the kind words. It honestly still feels very surreal, but I'm ready. I'm ready to let it go, let it be free out in the world. You are awesome. You know, I'm one of your biggest fans and I'm so very, very excited. The book is called Songs for the Dead and the Living. And it's got this gorgeous cover. Um, listeners, there'll be a link to buy the book in the podcast. And if you come along on Tuesday the 5th, Sarah will sign a copy for you. There'll be books for sale there too. Tell me about the cover, the artwork there. Oh, definitely. I will be so excited to sign copies and uh, to sell books with the cover because it is extraordinary and it is by none other than the most amazing Palestinian artist um, who you might uh, have come across before, Nasser, Malak Motar. So Malak Motar's work I have been a fan of for quite some time now. And when my publishers and I discussed who would be the kind of perfect artist to um you know, whose painting or whose whose work would cover would would be the cover and would honor, you know, my words. Uh, honestly, there was no two ways about it. We just immediately both landed on Malak Motor, and I was so so thrilled that she said yes. I know it's gorgeous, and it's worth the price of the book just to get that piece of art. <laughs> How does it feel to be a published author? I still haven't really quite believed it yet. I think it's still kind of in my mind, it feels like this distant thing. Like, obviously, you know, as someone who has published work before and has had discrete, you know, stories or poems, essays, that kind of thing in anthologies um, multiple, multiple times, and I've even co-edited my own anthology, this still feels quite different. It's It feels like very vulnerable. Like I'm out here on my own on the ledge, whereas, you know, when you're in an anthology, when, when you're with other artists, Artist, there is that kind of collective feeling and collective safety, but now it's just me, myself, and and my words. And so, and of course, it it takes a village to put uh, together a book and to have it out there um, to get it to a point where it's ready to be out there in the world. But ultimately, I think you feel like the successes are collective, but the failures, um, if any, you know, or or the kind of the gaps are your own. And so, yeah, it, it's a lot exhilarating and 
very, very a lot. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> Most of your other work, uh, like a couple of pieces of books I've got, have been those anthologies, but also poetry. Is this the first novel? Yes. Yeah, so this is the first long form novel. Yeah. From, you know, more than 10,000 word uh, type yeah. work. So it is, yeah, it, it was definitely one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my artistic career. So how, how do you come to the idea and formulate it? What's the process of pitching? If you're JK Rowling, a nice white woman, you can just say, I'm writing a book and they'll send advanced funds. That's right. And not get cancelled for problematic politics either. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't have that um, privilege or luxury. Uh, look, it's a bit of a, um, I was very lucky that I have been involved in writing communities uh, here in, in um, Sydney for quite some time now. And I think being part of those communities and, and building relationships was one part of it, yes, but also really working on my craft, my discipline as a writer for the last 10 years to feel like I'm at a point where I'm ready to even begin to think about a novel. And quite frankly, one of my mentors and editors, Dr. Michael Mohammed Ahmed, was the person who was really the most encouraging of me and said, you know, you're ready, it's time. And he kind of knew it before I did. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not ready. I, I need at least another 10 more years of, you know, working on my craft and working on my discipline. And he's like, no, Sada, you are definitely ready. Trust me, I know you can do this. And I think just having that little boost of confidence and support really helped me feel like, you know, ready to take it out into the world. So as I was in discussions with the publisher, I was also, and nothing had been locked in yet. They had offered, you know, this mentorship, which was one part of it, but the other part was actually thinking, all right, what do I want to write about now that I've actually you know, potentially got this opportunity on my doorstep and I don't want to waste it. Um, what do, what, what is it that I want to write about? And luckily at the time, so I had been writing a short story for this collection called Racism, uh, also had by uh, Michael Muhammad and for Sweatshop. And while I was writing it, I decided that I wanted to write a speculative fiction book. So it was going to be along the lines of like a dystopian future and it was going to be set in so-called, you know, colonial Australia and had a mix of events, you know, and the underlying theme was Islamophobia, really. And and of course, you know, um, Palestine will inevitably always come into it. But mm -hmm. those were some of the things I was thinking about. But the more I kind of sat down to write about this specific um book, the more that Jamila's story, and Jamila, of course, is the protagonist in, in my book, Songs for the Dead um, and Living. So the more I sat to write about this other book, the more Jamila came to me and the more that her and her family and the characters insisted on being written out and being written out as a, as a full story. So what was initially a short story for racism ended up developing into much more than that. And I think ultimately the reason for that is and you know it's so funny you can start a story with one intention in one way but then really once you just let it carry you find yourself somewhere else entirely and part of that was because I was thinking a lot about at the time about my journey and my healing and where I'm at who I'm at you know who I am why you know why do we do the things that we do like a confluence of things had to happen for decades to, you know, to get to a point where Sara is exists and Sara is here and Sara is doing what she's doing. So I, the more I thought about that, the more it led me to like my parents' journey and my grandparents' journey, you know, ancestry and that kind of thread. So I was pulling all of these threads. Is, is the book autobiographical? Is Jamila Sara? No, no, it's not. But it's not. And look, you wouldn't be mistaken um, to ask that or to think that. And I've, I've, 
you know, made sure in my kind of introductions and in speaking about it um, to say, look, it's it's not autobiographical, but it is very much inspired by my mother's migration story. And I share intersections and geographies with the character. You know, the feelings in the book are definitely real. But ultimately, um, for me, it was like I was thinking about all these things. I was thinking about my parents and and their journeys and their kind of origin stories, if you will. And that's what led me to this. I realized that, you know, our whole life is almost a culmination or like a byproduct of a chain of events that started with um, or, you know, have started with particular incidents like the Nakba as one, one night, one event, or rather one, you know, one night of exile for my family, one ongoing event. And that has shaped the trajectory of our entire lives. And so that for me was like the thing that I was fascinated by and the kind of the ghosts of those questions were what was haunting me at the time. And that's what I wanted to answer. It's really cool that there is space today for Palestinians telling Palestinian stories. For so long, as we've done, whether it's been in our advocacy work that we did together, Sarah, or anything else, it's been spoken about us without us. But increasingly, we're commanding those spaces ourselves, taking them for ourselves. And it's great that a book like this can be published because aside from yourself and and Abdel Fateh, we're not really getting a lot of Palestinian stories. That's right. And I mean, I think for a long time, Palestinians, as as you've said, Nasser, have been silenced and invisibilized and erased. That is the global entity that we are up against. It's it's invested in our erasure in every form, whether it's in academia or in arts or otherwise. And so it has been very difficult. But having said that, we have never actually been silent or invisibilized. That is a deliberate strategy. We have continued to share our stories, continued to be in different spaces and continued to write and perform and, to, and to, to make and do art, right? So I think for me, what has been the shift is probably uh, similar in politics. There has been a lot more space for these narratives, uh, in large part, um, the, a space for these narratives and for like the shift in language, in large part due to First Nations activists and the staunch work of Black communities here. So in the same way that in our advocacy, we are able to speak about colonialism and use that terminology a lot more freely without having to either silence ourselves or kind of really tiptoe around it or explain it at best. Now we can take for granted like the use of these words and say it and also take for granted that um, almost that there is no debate that colonization, uh, you know, in, in our in these spaces that colonization is taking place, in fact, and that Israel is a settler colonial state in the same way that uh, Australia is a colonial project. So I think it would be a mistake not to acknowledge that um, a mistake at best and disingenuous at worst not to say that I think we are definitely uh, indebted to um, fierce black artists and black uh, you know activists here who have really created that space for us to be able to talk about Palestine and be un- unapologetic and continue to do what we were doing, but to have there be a lot uh, more courage in the face of that as well. Listeners, we're joined by Sarah Saleh, an amazing woman, Palestinian, Lebanese, Egyptian author, <laughs> polymath, poet, lawyer, all-round super-duper star. Sarah will be joining Anthony Lowenstein and Free Palestine Victor- Vic. So freepalestinevic.org. Go there to find out details of their upcoming talk Tuesday, the 5th of September, That's Tuesday coming, Human Rights in the Palestine Laboratory in the Age of Surveillance at 6.30 at RMIT. So make sure you get along and see Sarah. 
Nora Mansour and Anthony Lowenstein. It's so important, Sarah, for Palestinian stories to be spoken about by Palestinians. One of the realities of colonialism and refuge and dispersion is we're so busy living, surviving, struggling, that our art is not forefronted for so long, you know, particularly in Palestinian houses, you know, you can be a doctor, a dentist, or a failure, suggesting to your or a lawyer, <laughs> suggesting to your parents that you might want to pursue the arts. <laughs> yeah. You might want to pursue the arts would send them into convulsions and perhaps near-death experiences. <laughs> a lot of the books, Palestinian books, of course, are, are non-fiction. They talk about the crimes that occur to us. Increasingly, as a genre, Palestinians are embracing their art. And whether it's Malak Matar with her drawings and art, the cover of your book, Songs for the Dead and the Living, or your own work or, you know, spoken word stuff that you've done or increasingly the body of work. In the fiction space, Palestinians are increasingly filling that space, telling our stories. Some of the fiction pieces I've read have, are filled with hope. Some of them, you know, end up in despair. But all of them are unique voices that speak to us, but also to a wider community and humanise us uh, as people. Share with us a little bit of Jamila's story without giving away too much of the, the plot. So Jamila's story starts with her uh, family, actually. So it's uh, like a lot of Palestinian uh, families. Um, it is a large and loving and chaotic uh, Palestinian Lebanese family. So they're a mixed family uh, that are living as uh, undocumented people in um, Lebanon during the civil war. And Unfortunately, they are made to leave Lebanon or they they feel like they're for, you know, they have to they have to flee um because of what's going on there in Beirut. And so I think for me this was uh just another, you know, another ex tragic experience of exile, you know, from first from Palestine to Lebanon and then from Lebanon to elsewhere that the family have to contend with and a further slip away from homeland and what that means to them as people who are no longer there, how they 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 move in the world and their relationship with Palestine when they are so far from it. So the, the family is, uh, you know, the family story is told through the eyes of the young protagonist, the youngest daughter, Jamila. And she, like, you know, most teenagers is also someone who wants to chase her dreams and, and follow uh, her friends and her life and her family and, and her love rather and, and um, figure out like most teenagers do figure out herself. And so she wants that freedom to do that, but at the same time is kind of stuck between that and the feelings that also uh, she she wants to feel feelings of safety and security and, and stability with her family. And again, these are things that are not common to them as a family I'm not known to them as a family that have lived with a lot of uncertainty and in this kind of backdrop of of exile and 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 war and conflict. So what we end up finding with this book is we're following Jamila's journey from one side of the world to the other as she tries to figure out herself and find a place where she can be fully herself and fully free and what that means for Palestinians, particular, particularly in, in you know, quote unquote, diaspora and who have mixed backgrounds um, as well, because I, I've found that there are a lot of there aren't many novels that have dealt with that as well. The intricacies and the kind of the nuances of being fractured, being fragmented means that, you know, there's a lot of out uh, marrying outside of kind of the Palestinian culture, what mm -hmm. that means for for the cause, for the upbringing, for identity and how we contend with this and ultimately 
ultimately, ultimately, the fact that there really is no one correct way to be Palestinian, one correct way to uh, show, you know, that and to to embody that. And I think that for me was one of the kind of the main messages of this book as well. In all I do, and increasingly as I get older, I feel a burden, a responsibility as a representative, as a leader, a community elder, whatever you want to call about it. Yeah. Representation, does that weigh on you? I mean, you're, you're charting a path now, creating a space that I look forward to those that sit behind you and what they will produce now that we're normalizing Palestinian voices and Palestinian art. Do, do you feel that sense of weight? Definitely. I mean, again, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the work, you know, of so many artists and activists and storytellers throughout our communities um, who are uh, either Palestinian or Palestinian allies, you know, Palestinian adjacent. So a lot of incredible Arab um, and there's a rich history of Arab activism in um, so-called Australia. So, again, I think part of your earlier question, how did we get here and how are we creating the space is also because of their tireless um, efforts and advocacy and work. And so I I definitely stand on the shoulders of Palestinian artists like Randa Abdel Fattah, who you mentioned before, and and countless others. Um, but I also think what's so great is understanding that like there is room for all of these stories. There is abundance and that um, we're not homogenous and that there's space for us to be able to share these stories in a way where we're reflecting the diversity of our experiences, as I said earlier, and that there's no like one specific or right way to be Palestinian. And also really just being able to resist the inevitability of our grief and our loss, because we are more than just grief and loss. Like, yes, that is part of our journey and our experiences for, for a lot of us. Absolutely. You know, Nakba is is grief and loss and is is contending with that. But also we're a lot more than that. You know, we, we are complex um, humans, complex Palestinians who get to feel other things like joy and family and, and you know, uh, love and travel and dream. And you know, we were able to do all these things. And so you know, a lot of us. And so I think that was an important part of the book as well, being able to explore those relationships and those joys in moments that are big moments of rupture, uh, but also in the mundane. Listeners, we've got Sarah Saleh, who is talking about her book, Songs for the Dead and the Living. She'll be joining Anthony Lowenstein and Noura Mansour on Tuesday, the 5th of September at 6.30pm at RMIT. Details at freepalestinevic.org, freepalestinevic.org. There'll be a link in the podcast, Human Rights in the Palestine Laboratory in the Age of Surveillance. Our matriarchs, our Palestinian women, it's past time, way past time for Palestinian men to get out of the way and let our Palestinian <laughs> women take over. You know, I've said that many times. You know, I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I'm ready to serve. There are many characters in the book, of course, but Taita, Taita Aisha, tell us a little bit about her. Seita Aisha, I think, is definitely one of my favorite characters, if I was allowed to have a favorite character in the book. Uh, she is someone who, um, ex you know, is a, is a survivor of the Nakba and has lost, you know, in the Nakba as well. And of course, you know, Palestinians, um, our dispossession and the colonial project didn't start with Nakba, but is it is one of the kind of the most significant um events or commemorative events in our calendar and again as i said an ongoing an ongoing structure or event and so teta we follow teta's journey as she sort of survives the nakba and is you know spends a lot of her life contending with what that means for her and again 
people deal with trauma differently. And there are people who prefer not to talk about it. There's a lot of shame and a lot of silencing around that, around being uh, exiled, you know, being out of your home and so, you know, not having a home, so to speak, just being a burden on somewhere else, on someone else, somewhere else. And so Teta, for a lot of her life, spends it contending with these questions with these demons until she realizes that actually, you know, whilst Palestinians, particularly those that have been exiled and have have gone from place to place, don't always have kind of material or tangible heirlooms. There we we do have our memories and our stories of our the people that we loved and of our homeland as well. And so she realizes that she has she in order for her own like ability to reconcile her trauma and face it, she she decides that she wants to share the story and she wants to pass it down to her to her granddaughters. And so we see that in the first, I guess, few chapters of the book. And I, I don't want to say much more, but she is definitely a metaphor for that. And and I think she is in a in a really good place to teach them a few lessons before she departs. And uh, that those lessons are, I think, I, I don't want to I don't want to say what those lessons are, but I think those lessons are very special for Palestinians. And so I think that for me was there was definitely a lot of joy writing, writing those chapters as well. Sarah, you come from Western Sydney. I remember the first time I went to Western Sydney, my brothers are working in New South Wales and we went there. <laughs> And I thought I was in Beirut. It didn't really feel like I was in Australia. <laughs> what was it like growing up in the Arab community in Western Sydney? I mean, as a Pelbo, Peljipo? I don't know. Yeah. What, <laughs> what are the, yeah, what is the shortcut for that? I mean, it is a mouthful. And sometimes I just say Arab Australian. And I remember this one time you read my bio somewhere and you, you'd come to me and you were like, why did they call you Arab Australian? Are they erasing your Palestinianness? And you were so concerned. And I was like, no, Nasser. I actually asked them because sometimes it is it can be a mouthful and I get it. So, but it made me realize that, you know, it's definitely there is a sort of political impetus or motivation for for saying that I'm Arab Australian, obviously, because part of that is solidarity as mm -hmm. well and and understanding what the baggage of that that identity is. Like it's loaded. Um, and there's also a lot of issues, but there is is also a reason why I want to deliberately own or, or put Palestine up front because again we are contending with this entity global entity that is trying to erase us and invested in our erasure so in any case um as someone who I, I didn't um exactly grow up in western Sydney but I have been someone who has been working in various spaces in and across Western Sydney for as long as I can remember. Um, and also, I've been really lucky to be grown as an artist uh, on Darug land, which is also parts of it, Western Sydney. And I think to me, that is worth acknowledging and honoring, you know, always, again, um, being able to say that I was raised and, and grew my craft as an artist because of uh, artists and Black artists and artists of colour from Western Sydney is just as important for me to to acknowledge in, in all that I do. Now, I mean, I can write an email. I might even be able to write the odd op-ed. It, it's amazing <laughs> to me how stories come to people like yourself and, and whether it ends up being a poem, song, spoken word or a book. Is there a way that you can explain that to like the lay person, our listeners who might one day think there might be a novel in there? <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, that is such a lovely thing to say because I I do believe that everyone has an artist in them and and just what that artist looks like and what their art might be. Um, and, and there's a lot to be said as well for doing something, even if you're not necessarily good at it. You do it for the joy of the thing. You do it because you want, you know, the thing as well. But um, having said that, yes, I, I think writing the good news is that writing can be learnt. There are writers who might inherently have, you know, a bit more talent in the same way that we talk about sports and someone might be inherently a little bit more athletic than someone else. I do think there's that. But luckily you can, um, again, like most disciplines, um, learn and really just work hard and like work on your craft. So for me, I'd, I would never say that there's uh, no hope or that someone can't be a writer. There's such thing as bad writing and there's such a thing as good writing and you just have to, you know, view it as a discipline and keep working at it. But it is it is hard work. It is. Yeah, but I, I saw you on Facebook. You had like poems from when you were a kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I might have I gone roses are red, violets are blue. I love oh, you. My, my poems weren't that great either. Like some of them were about the seasons. Like they were bad. They were bad. Yeah, I used to write songs and I think that's the other thing too I was very lucky to have um, parents who were very much invested in like storytelling and the arts as a means around the house again it is as a means to like that's what we were brought up on and Nasa like you know you know the saying that Palestinians often march before you know they march before they learn to speak and uh, and I think mm -hmm. that to me is like very similar in that we grew up in a household where I was always like I grew up on a steady diet of quite literally L Jazeera news and the Arabi like news presenter yelling in the background and like mm -hmm. uh, political opinions and stories almost constantly. So it was either that or, you know, Arabic music and Feiruz and all the icons and like not to romanticize it, but again, like our art and our um, stories and our poems and our, our poetry, that's what I was really lucky enough to grow up on. And, and that was one of the few things that was not material um, that you know, my parents were able to share with us. And so growing up in that environment and then having my parents, you know, be really invested and, and, and spend their time like getting us books. I was always borrowing books from the library and begging my mom once a year to buy me those like expensive scholastic books from the school um, newsletter. Like it was honestly, it was like aid. And so just getting one of those books. And so, yeah, I, I was very lucky to have that. And before I was a writer, I was a reader. I mean, it's a beautiful thing that increasingly as Palestinians, we're creating the space for our next generations to forefront our identity and our art and everything that is beautiful about Palestine. Listeners, you are listening to Sarah Saleh. Come along Tuesday night, Human Rights and the Palestine Laboratory in the Age of Surveillance, Tuesday, 6.30. Details at freepalestinevic.org. Songs for the Dead and the Living. You have to come along and buy it just for the cover and get Sarah to sign it. You will love the story, I'm sure. Sarah, we've got a couple of minutes to go. Perhaps let's talk about the panel. What can attendees expect from yourself and Ant? So on Tuesday, uh, myself, Anthony and Nora Mansour from APAN will be on this panel uh, to talk all things Palestine uh, in the age of surveillance. And I think 
there will definitely be uh, a lot of talk around the shift in politics and the political situation and uh, as well as a little bit of uh, talk of craft and, and you know, the literary spaces that we occupy and that we're in because, you know, Anthony has been a writer for a long time, an investigative journalist, and that's his lens. And I, uh, you know, as someone who is an artist, a poet, uh, a prose writer, I have, um, I'm approaching, you know, storytelling and, and sharing stories about Palestine that way. So we really want to delve into that discussion and how do we talk Palestine? How do we share stories about Palestine, the language around it that's being used at the moment and what that looks like um, and the kind of the different experiences, you know, effective storytelling, if you will. Uh, the other thing that I think uh, people might be interested uh, to hear about is, the, you know, the kind of the identity politics surrounding Palestine and certainly the limits of that, you know, identity politics. Um, and I think uh, the fact that ultimately there is there is a growing movement, both, uh, you know, in in kind of uh, Jewish community spaces and, of course, in our spaces uh, for a, a free Palestine. And, and so there's going to be a lot to get through in the in the hour or so. Uh, but that's what we're kind of hoping to be able to chat about next week or on Tuesday. Fantastic. Listeners, we've been joined today by Sarah Saleh, whose book Songs for the Dead and the Living is out. You can buy it. There'll be a link in the podcast for you to be able to buy it. You can come along on Tuesday and buy a copy there. Sarah will sign it for you and um, you will be able to put it as an heirloom and pass it on to your children. But so make sure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is there a more glorious um, hope or wish for a book? Honestly, Nasser, that was really apt and beautiful. Thank you so much. Of course, Sarah. Thank you. Tuesday at 6.30 at RMIT, Human Rights, and the Palestine Laboratory in the Age of Surveillance, Tuesday at 6.30pm. Details at freepalestinevic.org, freepalestinevic.org. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a treat to be able to chat to you, Nasser. Listeners, thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine. Wise man. Only fools, only fools, only fools.